Welcome back to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories in the ocean. Today we are doing something a little different. To honor the legacy of a true ocean pioneer, Don Walsh, who passed away on November 12th, we are bringing back an episode from the archives. Don Walsh, an American oceanographer and explorer, made history in 1960 when he and Swiss engineer Jacques Picard descended to the Challenger Deep, the deepest point in the Mariana Trench, reaching an astonishing depth of 35,800 feet. Their groundbreaking expedition aboard the Bathyscape Trieste opened up a new era of deep-sea exploration and unveiled the awe-aspiring realm of the abyssal plain. He was a kind man who was quick with a joke. His loss was a blow to the community, but at 92, he lived a good, long life. Once again, we would like to submit to you this episode that celebrated the anniversary of the Trieste dive. Today, January 23rd, marks the 60th anniversary of the very first dive into the deepest part of the ocean, and our special guest today is one of the two men who made this incredible journey. Join us for a very special episode of... Ocean Science Radio! That was terrible! I was waiting for a cue and the handshake there. I'm Andrew Kornblatt, a SciComm professional specializing in the ocean, clean tech, and sustainable sectors. Unfortunately, our regular co-host Vicky Vasquez could not make it for this episode. Today, we have a very special co-host. Let me introduce to you one of the co-stars of the live play Ocean Science Dungeons & Dragons podcast, Dugongs and Sea Dragons, an aquanaut and PhD candidate at FIU, Ms. Naomi Francis Farabaugh. Thank you. Hi. Tell us a little bit about yourself. As you said, I am a PhD candidate studying at Florida International University. My area of focus is the behavioral ecology of marine predators. In particular, I'm studying sharks and the roles they play on coral reef ecosystems. I do that by dropping a lot of baited cameras. Uh, right now, my PhD work is taking place primarily in French Polynesia, and I'm investigating you know, what factors affect the relative abundance and distribution of them throughout the islands and, you know, what roles they play in their ecosystems. I also am an aquanaut, which is a fancy way of saying I have done a week-long saturation mission on the world's only undersea laboratory, Aquarius, which is run by my university and is off the coast of the Florida Keys. Today we are talking about the deepest place in the ocean, the Challenger Jeep of the Mariana Trench. It's located north of Australia to the northwest of the Mariana Islands. It's 35,791 feet deep. Just to give you an idea of how deep that is, it's roughly 120 football fields deep, or about 33 Salesforce towers. In other words, it's more than a mile deep than Mount Everest is tall. Mount Everest, just for reference, is 29,029 feet tall. It's 30 times deeper than light can penetrate, and the pressure at the bottom is 1,071 times that at sea level. All in all, humans are not really evolved to survive there, let alone journey there. To date, there have only ever been six successful manned dives to the Challenger Deep. 
Most recently, multimillionaire Victor Vescovo spent over $48 million of his own money through his nonprofit Five Deeps Expedition. Today, we are celebrating the 60-year anniversary of humans first reaching the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean. Welcome, Don. My name is Don Walsh. I'm a retired naval officer. Over my naval career and, and uh, after my Navy retirement, I've been uh, involved in uh, submarines, uh, deep ocean exploration, uh, other oceanographic research. I've been involved in exploration in the polar regions. I was uh, a dean and professor at University of Southern California. Don is also usually sailing around the world on expeditions, getting invited to some awesome event, and working with groups like Elders of the Ocean and the Explorers Club. I managed to keep busy. I'm never bored. Sounds really cool. So, Don, tell us a bit about yourself. I grew up on San Francisco Bay, so the, the ocean, the sea, has always been in my blood since I was a, a wee lad. I went into the Naval Academy when I was uh, 18 years old. I majored in boats, so the very nature of my uh, academic training was, was related to the oceans, uh, not as a scientist, but as a, as a mariner. When Don Walsh says he went to the Naval Academy, he is talking about the famous Annapolis Naval Academy. For those at home who are unfamiliar, it is insanely competitive and prestigious. One of the many requirements for even being considered for a mission is nomination, usually from a member of Congress. Jimmy Carter, John McCain, Admiral Nimitz, Alan Shepard, and even James Irwin were graduates. But then again, sober Robert Heinlein and Montel Williams. Don't forget about Roger Staubach. So here's this young naval graduate a few years out of Annapolis and 1959 rolls around bringing about the start of the 60s. At the time I was a lieutenant in the Navy, I had just qualified in submarines, so I'd spent uh, two years uh, sailing in submarines, so I was I'm somewhat familiar with underwater work, and, and of course my degree uh, from the Naval Academy from Annapolis is engineering science, not engineering related curriculum, so I was sort of an engineer and a submarine type when I went into the dress program. It was my first command in the Navy, uh, and that was in uh, January of 1959 when I joined that project, and I became the officer in charge of the Navy's bathyscaphe Trieste. You may have heard of the bathysphere, which is basically a giant metal ball with a window that gets dropped into the ocean via a metal cable to explore whatever happens to be directly underneath it. A bathyscape builds on the idea that you can attach a ball to a giant float, which is filled with a buoyant, incompressible fluid, such as gasoline. That's right, the boom-boom juice gasoline. That's what everyone calls it, boom-boom juice. Once the steel cable was untethered, the craft sinks slightly faster than one miles per hour. The Trieste was named after a city in Italy where it was actually put together. And back to Don. It worked on an interesting principle. It was a, if you will, an underwater free balloon. In other words, it had the two components of a balloon that people ride in, uh, hot air balloons, things like that. You've got the balloon itself, which is uh, full of uh, uh, buoyant substance. Uh, and uh, hanging beneath that is the payload, in other words, the, the place where the people are. In case of high-altitude balloons, it's a spherical capsule, if you will, and the people are inside. Uh, in the case of ones that most people ride in, you just got a big bag basket hanging under a hot air balloon. 
but the underwater balloon is really the same principle. The, there's a steel, very thin shell, steel hull, looked a bit like a sausage in, in shape, and it was filled with a lighter-than-water substance, uh, aviation gasoline, because oil floats on water. And you can't use a gas like helium or hydrogen or water because with your own hands you can take an inflated balloon and collapse it flat. So that's that's a no uh, a no no going deep in the ocean. You're not going to go very far with it filled with a a gas gaseous substance. Instead, you have to have a liquid, a solid liquid that's later in the water. Petroleum oil floats on water, so that gave us our balloon component, uh, the the uh, the lift, and then suspended beneath it was a spherical cabin. Uh, which would hold the two-man crew. Don mentions the whole balloon aspect here, which makes sense when you take into account that the man who designed the bath escape was also known for his record-breaking helium-filled balloon flights. For those sci-fi fans out there who especially love Next Generation, two bits of trivia. The Trieste was the name of a ship that was supposed to rescue Captain Jean-Luc Picard's Enterprise D, and there is a theory that Gene Roddenberry named Jean-Luc Picard as an amalgamation of chemist Jean Picard and his twin brother, Auguste Picard, creator of the Trieste Bathyscaphe. Yet, I'm not quite the Star Trek generation. I didn't quite get in there. So that was all new information to me. So how exactly did Don get put into this metal ball attached to a gasoline-filled metal balloon at the bottom of the ocean? Side note, that is one of the coolest sentences I have ever said. A call went out for volunteers, uh, and uh, I met the Navy's stringent high standards for a bathyscaphe pilot, which they had no idea what that was, uh, because I was the only volunteer. Sounds like you were the best man for the job. What was that job, specifically? Our initial uh, operations out of the Navy Laboratory in San Diego were to uh, test and evaluate this platform for oceanographers. In other words, we weren't just going to jump in the ocean with a scientist inside and say, let's have a look around. We wanted to thoroughly test the vehicle in the most extreme circumstances to learn where its weaknesses were, where its strengths were, uh, how good it was actually as a platform, and to uh, do all of that before we handed it over to the marine scientists. So my role really in the early days was like a test pilot of a new airplane. Oh, so a volunteer test pilot going to the bottom of the ocean. And what about the thrill of setting a record and being one of the first living humans at the bottom of the ocean? I would sign up. Apparently, that wasn't the point. So it wasn't a set record, and we really didn't do any research because we're two engineers, not two scientists. But all this was necessary to prove out the system, make sure it was safe, make sure it was reliable. So that was... uh, uh, the goal of, of that program called Project Necton, N-E-K-T-O-N. The U.S. Navy wanted to make sure it knew exactly how to operate it and uh, test it to the extreme limits. So that's why we decided to take it to uh, the deepest place in the world ocean, which is Challenger Deep, a depth of roughly seven miles. So this 26-year-old Navy lieutenant, whose experience to date was commanding a submarine for two years that had never gone beneath 300 feet, was asked to take part of this secret project in the summer of 1958. While the Picard said it could venture to any depth of the planet, it had never been tested in deep water. So Don wiggled his way into the metal sphere with the designer's son, Jacques. Well, it, you know, it was kind of crowded. The, uh, the interior 
by the time you loaded in all of the equipment necessary to operate the vehicle and, and have an allowance for, uh, of course, the, the equipment that the uh, researchers would bring along, uh, uh, you know, racks inside, there, there's, I don't know, maybe 40 to 50 cubic feet of space for two people. Picard, uh, Jacques Picard was six feet two. So he kind of coiled up like a snake in there. I'm not particularly big, so I could I could fit inside. But the uh, thing is that it's it's such an unusual experience that you don't really feel the uh, the cramped conditions. It's a little cold inside, mid 50s, something like that. But body heat, and if you dress properly, you're okay. Looking like something out of a sci-fi movie, these two explorers launch themselves into the deep unknown with a literal small window into this alien habitat. We only had one little viewport that was about three inches in diameter that you could see out. And it was it was a truncated cone. It was a plastic cone. The outer surface was maybe 10 inches in diameter, but the inner surface, uh, before it penetrated the hull, was just a few inches. So uh, you could basically just get one eye up to it. Funny story that Don once told me at a conference. While they were diving, the pressure was so intense that this 10-inch thick giant plexiglass cone porthole started to push into the ball, like multiple inches deep. In fact, after passing about 27,000 feet, or 9,000 meters, one of the outer window panes cracked, shaking the entire vessel. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I mean, terrifying. Uh... Was it terrifying? What what was the actual experience like? So what was it like? Well, we everything we did was for the first time. We it wasn't like you could look it up in a book or talk to somebody who'd done it before. We were pioneering technologies and techniques and uh, uh, trying to uh, get the maximum productivity out of a vehicle like this. It was quite difficult, and the learning curve was very steep sometimes. The descent took nearly five hours with the two-man crew crawling down thousands of feet of the ocean until finally settling on the bottom, which the explorers describe as a diatomaceous ooze of fine white silt made of microscopic algae. The expedition only had enough time to spend 20 minutes at the bottom. There, Don and Jacques ate chocolate bars for energy in the 45-degree Fahrenheit cabin. While at the bottom, our intrepid explorers observed jellyfish and shrimp-like creatures and a couple of small white flatfish swimming away, showing some vertebrate life could withstand the extremes at the bottom of the ocean. One of the things that is crazy to me about this trip is about the communications time delay. To speak with the originating, or mothership, the crew had to use a sonar hydrophone system. With the distance and physics at play, these messages traveled at the speed of nearly a mile per second. It took about seven seconds for a voice message to travel from the craft upward. I imagine those pauses could feel very long at the bottom of the ocean. Fun side note, when NASA does its NEMO missions to Aquarius, they often, when they're doing their training simulations to adjust astronauts or astronaut candidates to extreme environments, they will often artificially simulate a communications delay and how long they make that delay depends on the type of mission that they're simulating. So for instance, if they are trying to simulate an Earth-Mars mission, they can create a communication delay from anywhere between four minutes, which is the minimum time delay, and around 24 minutes, which is the maximum time delay. 
After their short stay at the literal bottom of the ocean, Don and Jock made the three and a half hour trip back to the surface and into the history books. One bit of this story that always kind of bums me out, especially since Don is such a amazingly sweet and friendly guy, is that making it to the bottom of the ocean and back didn't really grasp the national attention. Walsh, Picard, and the other dozen crew who worked on the Necton project never got a ticker tape parade. The country was fixated on the space race, reeling from the 1959 landing of a Soviet object on the moon. In 1963, just three years after its initial dive, the Trieste was modified and used to find the wreck of the missing nuclear submarine, the USS Thresher, off the coast of New England. Over the years, the Trieste was changed, retrofitted, and redesigned to the point where not a single original part remains. The Trieste now lives in the National Museum of the United States Navy in Washington, D.C. Walsh commanded a sub until 1970. Later, he ran his own maritime consulting company out of San Pedro and founded USC's Institute for Marine and Coastal Studies. He piloted submersibles to the wrecks of both the Bismarck and the Titanic, but he will forever be remembered for this one thing, being one of the first men to go down to the deepest part of the bottom of the ocean and then come back up. Shout out break! Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining us on this program. We're going to use this small break to talk a little bit about the side hustle that both Francis and I are a part of. Where we be our true deepest and nerdy selves and play Dungeons and Dragons for fun with our marine science and conservation fellows. It's as fun and as nerdy as it sounds. You should come and listen to silly voices. Come and listen to silly voices. <laughs> Yes, come for all the silly voices, but stay for the marine science and the shenanigans. That's right, come listen to the live play Dungeons Dragons marine science podcast, Dugongs and Sea Dragons, wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Being one of the forefathers of deep water exploration, Don has some thoughts on his dive as it compares to the efforts we are seeing today. The whole idea of the bathyscaphe, calf, of course, went away really by the mid-60s. Uh, we developed other ways of getting that buoyancy that we needed. Still had the spherical cabin, but they used a plastic foam, a very robust plastic foam that, uh, that uh, was filled with glass microspheres, and each one of those microspheres could take a small bubble of air. When you add it all up, these blocks of foam, which could be cast, shaped, and so on, gave you the buoyancy you needed, so you didn't need the gasoline anymore, and it uh, was much e logistically much easier to handle those later manned submersibles. Thank goodness. I know I'm being a little ridiculous here, but this entire time I've been imagining what it was like to dive with a giant balloon of explosive liquid strapped above you. That gasoline is pretty dangerous. You know, 54,000 gallons of gasoline sitting in, uh, in the middle of a Navy lab uh, on the waterfront in a very thin shell uh, container was always scary uh, because that's a lot of bang there if something happened. And so being able to substitute this, uh, we call syntactic foam for the gasoline, it's very safe. It doesn't burn uh, and, it, and it certainly it's not going to fail in a, in a major way. Uh, that was a big thing. Another material science uh, advantage was the evolution of uh, titanium technology, which gave us a great deal of strength, 
with uh, decreased weight. So we could get a make a pressure hull, a sphere, a cabin for a mass submersible uh, out of titanium and save a lot of weight over, say, one that's made out of steel, that sort of thing. And then also miniaturization of electronics. I think what kind of electronics we had in 1959, we vacuum tubes and things like that, and integrated circuits didn't exist, all of that. And battery technology, we used not much different than automobile batteries to power the thing. They're heavy. Uh, they don't give out much power. They're reliable, sturdy, but uh, really did a job on your payload. And now as we move towards the solar-zinc batteries and nickel-cadmium batteries, and today the lithium batteries, you're getting a lot of energy, a high-energy cross-section, if you will, per volume of battery, and they're very reliable, they're lightweight, cost-effective. So all of these things, these convergent technologies, came together to make things simpler and simpler. With all of these advances in technology, from materials to vacuum tubes to electronics, there is a huge opportunity to continue to explore the most remote and hazardous environments on the Earth. And beyond! So, with that advancement, what is Don's opinion on having physical human exploration, and does it have a future in the ocean, or is the future ROVs and underwater drones? The future of manned submersibles will always have them, but they'll be kind of a footnote to the main exploration of the deep ocean. Uh, the the, the heavy-duty, the heavy-lifting, uh, is today is being done by unmanned submersibles. In other words, no one aboard. They're being, in one case, remotely operated vehicles. They're being tended by a mothership, uh, which controls the vehicle through uh, a, an umbilical cord. All those technologies I just mentioned allow you to put a lot of capability into a rather small system. And in the early days, because of all the limitations, the technology and things we didn't have, it was cheaper and easier to put a human inside the vehicle uh, to control it. For most of us, it's a pretty good computer we have between our shoulders, top of our neck, and, and uh, the humans inside could do a lot of the jobs that uh, are now automated. So uh, we don't need the people as much as we did before because we could get the same quality of data and, uh, and much more efficiently and, and much lower cost. But there still be room for manned submersibles, a few. And, and they'll still be out there, but they will not be the primary driving force for exploring the deep ocean. That will be the unmanned submersibles. One issue of contention that I have found permeates the ocean community is a bit of not necessarily resentment, but tension over the split between the amount the world is investing in ocean and terrestrial exploration compared to the economic weight we throw behind exploring space. When I asked Don about this, he gave me a very unique and interesting response. We really have only explored about 10% of the world ocean, uh, and today we're talking about colonizing the moon, going to Mars, and all of that. And I have nothing against the space program. It's exciting. We have, in the ocean community have gotten an awful lot of our technology out of NASA. And, in fact, NASA has made massive investments in ocean sciences because a lot of the satellites of, of planets have oceans on them. And so uh, NASA is looking at ways, especially the robotics, of how they can land a spacecraft on one of these satellites and be able to explore that ocean. So we're getting a lot of support from the space program. And that's kind of broad in, in research projects, but also just from the technology side because they have these massive budgets and you know, it's a very expensive place to work. We can tap into that technology transfer. We've got a lot of benefit out of the space program. 
I would just ask for parity in exploring the uh, manned satellite that we all live on called planet Earth. Wise words from an adventurous spirit. Here's hoping that for 2020, we find that the money going to exploring the oceans gets a dramatic increase. And that partnerships between NASA and ocean groups like NOAA can give us the yes and approach to the space versus ocean exploration question. Let's focus on getting stuff done in 2020. More exploration, more conservation, more science. Huge thanks to Don Walsh for joining us today and a big thanks to you, our listeners. Please be sure to like, share, subscribe, share with your friends, all of the sharing on the socials, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, this helps raise awareness as our discoverability and allows us to reach new people and new listeners. Until next time, this has been the first episode of the new year for Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio. Anywho, you were talking about how you had first heard about Don Walsh and the Trieste story. Yeah, I have, um, I mean, I've always sort of been fascinated by the ocean, and I think as a kid I had this anthology book called The Deep, or Stories of the Deep, or something like that, and it had just a bunch of stories about deep diving and exploration, uh, underwater exploration, so there was a Jacques Cousteau bit, and it talks about sort of dive accidents on the Andrea Dory, uh, for those of you who weren't nerdy preteens like I was about diving, that's uh, a wreck off the coast of New England, I believe. That's uh, one of the more famous wrecks and also one of the deadlier ones because people go down there souvenir hunting and miss their timings and don't come back up. Ugh. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this kind of stuff is very much my bag. And I was really excited <laughs> when you invited me to do this episode because um, my little like Aquanaut heart just... That's awesome. I'm super excited about having you on the program. Um, just as a little bit of background, after I worked at Google, uh, I had gotten into a deeper dive into ocean communications and ocean groups through the Blue Ocean Film Festival. They actually had these amazing people involved, such as you know, the frickin' Prince of Monaco, Sylvia Earle, James Cameron, a bunch of top-level scientists, and people like Don Walsh. And because I was working behind the scenes, I actually got to meet and hang out with all of these people. And it wasn't until I started to hear about the impact that these people had on, you know, scientists such as yourself and other people throughout the ocean science community that I really appreciated what an amazing opportunity it was to really interact with these people so you know that's kind of where the whole don walsh connection came from it's just a super awesome bonus that you have this history with uh, growing up with the ocean science and this story anyway so this after the episode bit usually involves some sort of joking and puns you got any puns for us I mean, if you want puns, I literally have a tab open on my computer right now called the 50 Best Fish Puns. Oh my god, please do, yes. Um, you can tune a guitar, but you can't tune a fish. Unless, uh -huh. of course, you play bass. Oh man, a two-parter. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's 50 of these, and they don't get better, or do get better, depending on your perspective on puns. Uh, I'm classy. No, I'm sophisticated. 
I'll see myself out. Oh, by the way, listeners, Andrew just welcomed a little kiddo into the world. So give us a little bit of breathing room as he celebrates being a father. It's crazy new and weird. (laughs) I love her so much. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, Talk to you soon. I hope everything's good. Sorry about the the food.